Hey folks, Preet here. Here's a reminder. We have an exciting new podcast, a history podcast, starring brilliant and accomplished historians, Heather Cox Richardson and Joanne Freeman. The show launches on Tuesday, June 1st. It's called Now and Then. Subscribe to it wherever you get your podcasts. Heather and Joanne will host a special live event at 6 p.m. Eastern time on Thursday, May 27th. RSVP at cafe.com slash live or head to Cafe's Twitter and Facebook accounts. From Cafe and the Vox Media Podcast Network, welcome to Stay Tuned. I'm Preet Bharara. Would you want climate change to be regulated by the interests of Exxon shareholders? Would you say when Earth warms and the sea levels rise, the victims there are Exxon shareholders? It's like just kind of a weird approach. That's Matt Levine. He's a columnist at Bloomberg Opinion, where he writes Money Stuff, a daily free financial newsletter. With over 150,000 subscribers, Levine's newsletter has developed a cult following that extends far beyond Wall Street. It's famous for being witty and accessible, while also delivering on substance. That's partly due to Levine's background. He was a high school Latin teacher, a corporate lawyer, and an investment banker before becoming a financial writer. Today, Levine and I discuss his path to journalism, the saga of Elon Musk and cryptocurrencies, and why Levine often quips, everything is securities fraud. That's coming up. Stay tuned. Hey, this is Scott Galloway, author, professor, entrepreneur, and most importantly, host of the Prop G podcast. We got a special series running on right now called The Future of Work, where I answer all your questions on, surprise, The Future of Work. Questions including, what are we missing when we work remotely? Or how do we handle work-life balance when a major opportunity comes knocking? From the provocative to the technical, we're offering insights you won't want to miss. So tune in to The Future of Work, a Pod special sponsored by Canva. You can find it on the Pod wherever you get your podcasts. Now let's get to your questions. This question comes in an email from Anne Henning, who asks, what is to be made of Trump's attorney's memorandum in support of defendant's motion to dismiss in the Swalwell v. Trump case in the D.C. District Court? He argues that Trump is immune and that his speech is protected by the First Amendment. Are these arguments sufficient to cause the dismissal? Does Swalwell have any chance at winning this case? So those are good questions. They obviously relate to a lawsuit brought by a member of Congress, Eric Swalwell and others, against Donald Trump and others in connection with the January 6th insurrection. It seeks to utilize in a similar way to another suit brought by Congressman Benny Thompson, uh, a law that was meant to target the KKK in years past. So it's an interesting lawsuit. I think legal experts are not of the mind that it is a slam dunk by any means at all. Uh, and you're right. Donald Trump's defense lawyers have made a, you know two core arguments. With respect to the motion to dismiss that was just filed this week in the D.C. District Court, there's a bit of legal analysis that is sane, but there's also a bit of legal rhetoric and political rhetoric that is not so much. There's a lot of, as you might imagine, I have this vision of Donald Trump dictating sentences and words and phrases to his lawyers, demanding that they be included like he did with White House counsel when they sent letters back to Congress back in the day. There's a considerable amount of irrelevant 
whataboutism. He attacks Maxine Waters and other members of Congress in ways that really don't have anything to do with the central claims of this suit. But his lawyers do make two claims that, unlike in other circumstances that we've seen, are not frivolous. First, they articulate a First Amendment argument that Donald Trump, on January 6th, uh, essentially, said things that private citizens uh, and public citizens are allowed to utter. And it's in the form of political speech. It was about the election. And the lawsuit is an infringement of that speech. So on the First Amendment point, that's really the, the question at the heart of the case. Was Donald Trump engaging in ordinary political speech? Or was he engaging in incitement? For example, if Donald Trump had said things like, I want you to march to the Capitol, and I want you to break into the building, and I want you to break windows, and I want you to threaten people, and I want you to chant, hang Mike Pence, and I want you to go through the offices of the Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi, and do all these other things, and stop the certification of the vote, then I think it would be a clear case that the First Amendment would not protect Donald Trump. He didn't say those things, but in the arguments of Eric Swalwell and others, he effectively did that by telling people to march to the Capitol, by encouraging them, by using inflammatory language, and by making it clear that the thing he wanted, though he didn't say in so many words, the thing he wanted was the stopping of the certification. So we'll see how the judge rules on that, but it's not a frivolous argument on the First Amendment ground. Second, Donald Trump argues that he has absolute immunity. Now, in many contexts, his lawyers have erroneously argued that he has absolute immunity from compulsory process from Congress and, and, and from civil suits and from all sorts of other things. What essentially they're arguing here is that Donald Trump, like many public officials, if he was acting within the scope of his duty as president of the United States, discharging his obligations, engaging in normal conduct that a president engages in, well, then he shouldn't be held liable for things he did in that context. That, again, is not a frivolous argument. It's a real argument, but it doesn't always win. And it depends on what the judge will find constitutes the ordinary conduct of a president and whether or not this conduct was within the scope of those duties. We have an example where the president's arguments have not yet fully prevailed. You'll remember that there's a back and forth between Donald Trump and a woman named E. Jean Carroll, who's accused Donald Trump of a sexual assault. Donald Trump, during his presidency, attacked her, dismissed her, called her a liar. She then filed a defamation suit against Donald Trump. And one of the arguments Trump and his lawyers made in that case, you guessed it, the president is absolutely immune because he was acting within the scope of his duties. And that's being litigated right now because a judge found, nope, those statements you made denigrating Eugene Carroll were not part of your presidential duties. So we'll wait and see what happens with a judge here. I think it's important to see what the response of Eric Swalwell and his lawyers are, and we'll come back to it then. This question comes in a tweet from Twitter user Curious Bystander, who writes, Manhattan DA Cy Vance has convened a grand jury to hear evidence and weigh charges against Donald Trump. Is this significant, counselor? Thanks for calling me counselor. So this is the huge question that has been swirling around this week and everyone on television and in the newspapers and on social media and everywhere else is wondering how momentous a thing this is. I'm not one to scream from the rooftops every time a subpoena is issued or some action is taken, but I do think this is quite significant. As a matter of course, grand juries will have been involved in things like this. Subpoenas were issued for Trump documents and Trump financial information already. Those are called grand jury subpoenas. So in a formal way, there has been a grand jury involved for some time. And you would expect that over the course of doing a complicated investigation, there may have been times when you require a grand jury to hear testimony and lock in people's testimony, et cetera. What's different about this is the specificity of the reporting in the Washington Post. And again, 
Sometimes reports are wrong, but this seems you know, pretty corroborated and solid. And the specific reporting is that there is a, a special extended grand jury that will be in service for at least six months and can be extended, if necessary, upon the order of a court, where they meet three times a week to hear specific testimony relating to the complicated case involving Donald Trump, his organization, and other people in his orbit. That strikes me as more significant than sort of random incidental use of the grand jury. And it's just another sign, uh, another tea leaf, if you will, that Cy Vance and the top leadership in that office have a belief at least that there's a substantial likelihood they will bring a charge, certainly against people high up in the Trump orbit. And my view, my prediction is likely against Donald Trump itself. And I don't say that lightly. I have not gone running around blithely predicting that Donald Trump would be indicted on massive charges from multiple offices over the last number of years. But I have always kept an eye on this case because it has seemed that that office is serious, that that office is getting substantial information. And there's some signs that there will be a charge. And among them is is a combination of factors. One, the hiring of of an outside forensic accounting firm that was reported some time ago. Another sign, the hiring of a preeminent criminal lawyer, both on the defense side more recently, but also a high up official in my former office, the Southern District of New York, Mark Pomerantz, who is now on the team within the DA's office in Manhattan, working, I believe, exclusively on this case. That's not a thing you do unless you're serious and you also think you want to have continuity going into the future. Another factor is the announcement by New York Attorney General Tish James that what had been a civil investigation of the Trump organization has been converted into a criminal investigation. That to me means that someone somewhere along the way has found evidence that's credible that leads them to believe that the misconduct that is in question that they're looking at was not a matter of mistake or negligence or recklessness or accident, but that there was criminal intent on the part of one or more people. And to make an announcement like that in the context of all the swirling expectations about Donald Trump and his potential criminal exposure, I think is significant. I don't think you don't do that and raise expectations unless you think that there will be some real live consequence like the kind we've been discussing. And on top of all that, her office has joined forces with Cy Vance's office, going so far as to designate, cross-designate, two lawyers in her office uh, as special assistant district attorneys to work on the criminal case that Cy Vance has been working on. I think each of those individually is significant. You put them together, and I think it's highly significant. Then I want to make a non-legal point to further answer the question of whether or not there might be charges of the type that people are hyperventilating about, and that is Cy Vance. I've known Cy Vance for a long time, and I think he's a sober-minded careful lawyer, and he doesn't do things unless he's got a good reason for doing them. I know he's faced criticism in the past with respect to how he's conducted some cases, but I think if he was ever going to be careful and meticulous in a case, this is it. You know, he has overseen significant cases. I have overseen significant cases. There have been many significant cases in recent history in America and going back, of course. No case in the history of the country will be like this one if there is, in fact, a criminal charge against a former president of the United States. So you don't undertake any of this lightly. You don't put out any of these kinds of signals lightly. You know, a a highly relevant fact about Cy Vance, which most of you know by now, is that he is not running for re-election. So he is not running on the ground that I'm going to go after Donald Trump. He's never said that. And I'm going to persist until I convict Donald Trump. He's never said that. And he won't have the ability to do so. At most, he may oversee the filing of a charge. And I think given you know, how I led my office and how I think Cy Vance thinks about these things and how much investment he and his team and the new people have put into this investigation, 
that he's going to want to be the one making the decision to charge or not to charge before he leaves office, which is at the end of the year. He's not going to want to leave this to his successor, because in some ways I think that would be a shirking of responsibility. I don't think he'd want to do that. And it's a bit unfair for a newly elected district attorney to walk into office next January and have to decide what to do about the case. I really do believe Cy Vance thinks the decision is for him. And given the signals that he will be in a position to make such a decision before he leaves office. And, you know, he's a human being who will be thinking about the legacy he leaves behind. And some cases went very well for him. Some cases did not go perfectly for him. That's true of any prosecutor who has been in office for a long period of time. And on this, potentially the most momentous case in many ways in the history of the country, I just have the feeling that he wouldn't be making all these moves unless he had a pretty clear idea that there would be a charge. Now, it's also possible that the grand jury has been convened for the purposes of putting in testimony and developing charges and an indictment against Alan Weisselberg, the chief financial officer of the Trump organization. And then the plan is to squeeze him, prosecute him and hope he flips or some other members of Trump's organization or his associates. All of those things are possible. But the more days go by and the more signals that are out there, I'm just giving my frank, unproven assessment of where I think things are going. And by the way, I've, I've seen some smart people do some political analysis about what the fallout would be if Donald Trump gets charged by the Manhattan District Attorney. Some people are suggesting that makes it all but certain that Donald Trump will, in fact, announce that he's running for president in 2024 because it has the value of making him more relevant, uh, allowing him to run against the charges, call everything a witch hunt like he's done before, claim it's partisan and political and Democrats are out to get him and have failed before and will fail again, and also helps to drown out some of the coverage that would necessarily attend a prosecution like this. Stay tuned. There's more coming up after this. Support for this show comes from Washington Wise, an original podcast from Charles Schwab. Decisions made in Washington affect your portfolio every day. But what policy changes should investors be watching? Washington Wise, an original podcast for investors from Charles Schwab, tracks the stories making news right now and breaks them down for the average investor. Host Mike Townsend, Charles Schwab's Managing Director for Legislative and Regulatory Affairs, takes a nonpartisan look at the stories that matter most to investors. He explores topics like policy initiatives for retirement savings, taxes, and trade, inflation fears, the Federal Reserve, and how regulatory developments can affect companies, sectors, and even the entire market. In every episode, Mike and his guests offer their perspectives on how policy changes could affect what you do with your portfolio. Download the latest episode and follow at schwab.com slash Washington Wise or wherever you listen. My guest this week is Matt Levine. He's a financial writer at Bloomberg Opinion. Each day, Levine publishes Money Stuff, a widely read free newsletter. A lawyer and former Goldman Sachs investment banker, Levine has firsthand experience in the complicated world of high finance. And now as a writer, he makes sense of it for the rest of us. Today, Levine shares his insights into the culture of Wall Street, securities fraud class action suits, and the unique appeal of cryptocurrencies. Matt Levine, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. It's been a long time, and we've wanted you on for a while. 
We have a lot to talk about. Easy first question. Fair to say that you are a financial columnist at Bloomberg Opinion. That's correct. You did not begin as a financial columnist or even as a journalist. Uh, no, I began as a high school Latin teacher. A high school Latin teacher. And then you went, to, went law to law school. school like, like a lot of Latinists. Like, like a lot of Latinists. Did that help you? Did the Latin help you? Grace ipsa loquitur, you knew that before anyone else? You know, else? like you've, you have like 10 items of vocabulary. It's not as helpful as you'd think. <laughs> but the, the sort of sitting around parsing complicated texts is pretty useful. But the vocabulary is so-so. So you went to, so you went to law school. Then you went to a law firm after clerking. You went to a very esteemed law firm called Wachtell Lipton. I did. And then you quit that to become an investment banker. Why'd you do that? Uh, it was 2007. So that means two things. One, Wachtell was incredibly busy and I was working incredibly hard. And two, there was just a sense in 2007 that if you were a corporate lawyer, you're an M&A lawyer, you, the sort of ultimate goal was to go be in finance. I didn't really know what in finance meant. But basically, someone I knew who had left Whitehall even quicker than I had uh, called me up and said, hey, do you want a job at Goldman? And I said, is it better than this job? And he said, it's a little better than that job. It's a little better. And we talked very specifically about the hours. And he convinced me accurately that I would work fewer hours. And so I left Whitehall for Goldman thinking, you know, I'm going to Goldman. It's got to be better for whatever I want to end up doing in finance, even though I had no idea what that was. Was it a pay increase or not? No, it was um, It was my first year. I was on a guarantee that was basically matching my Wachtell salary. And then after that, it was, you know, the free market of investment banking. But unfortunately, I came in in 2007 where I was on a guarantee that was not great because 2007 Something happened in 2008? Year. Did something and happen? And then in 2008, everything collapsed. And I, <laughs> it was years before I made as much money as I would have made at Wachtell. But you persisted for another three years or so at Goldman. Yeah. I think my last year at Goldman, maybe, or my second to last year, I made more than I would have made at Wachtell, something like that. I don't know. But, you know, decent wage, fair to say. It was fine. And, and the hours were better. <laughs> but but so the, the, the buildup of all of this, which I've done inelegantly, is to get to the point where you decide Having gone to law school, worked at a law firm, been an investment banker at Goldman, you leave that too to become a financial writer. And I read somewhere to the tune of $50,000 a year, steep steep pay cut. Is that is that right? It was a little more than that. I think okay. I probably said it was about a 90% pay it was, it was less than a 90% pay cut. Um, so like an eight. So why, so why does a guy like you, uh, who did really well and was presumably on a you know good career path, taking an 80 to 90% pay cut? Well, one reason is that I didn't want to be an investment banker anymore. I liked, uh, I, I came in and I was doing a lot of like structuring and negotiating like deal documents and like in the weeds of building derivatives. And that was fun. But increasingly, as you get more senior in any line of business at a bank, your job is getting on planes and flying around to shake hands with clients. And that was less my skill set and less what I was interested in. And also I was like, I was just bad at it. And so were you bad at the flying or the shaking hands? Both. I, um, <laughs> I was not at good at like making small talk with clients. And I also really didn't like flying, uh, which is really debilitating. So I didn't really like that. And I had always sort of vaguely imagined myself as a writer, you know, as a classics major in college, I had like a fondness for the humanities. And I had vaguely imagined myself a writer without ever, without ever doing anything about it really. And, uh, you know, I was sort of like in a position where I had saved up some money from working in law and banking for a while. I didn't really have a lot of responsibilities. 
And it felt like a time to take a risk on something that if it didn't work out, I would do it for a year and live off savings and then go back and get a real job. But uh, it was felt a little bit like a sort of last chance to take a big risk like that in my career. And so I, I took it. Is there anything interesting about the fact that one could infer from your changing careers a second time and taking a huge pay cut that you personally don't care about money as much as many other people do. And you write about money. I mean, your, your newsletter was very popular and excellent. It's called money stuff. Is there anything interesting there or not? Uh, now as a suburban father, I care a lot about money. But, um, <laughs> but back uh, then. No, I mean, I think, I think there's something to that, right? I mean, like I write about the financial industry and like the sort of the characters are all making a lot of money and, I do feel a little bit like I have some distance on that. And it's weird, you know, it's weird to, to like talk to your friends in finance and, and, you know, your paths have diverged a little bit, but, uh, well, when, yeah, you go to, I, when you go to dinner, do you have to pay? It's better now. Cause like, you know, like, <laughs> <laughs> like my career has done okay since I left and like banking isn't what it used to be, you know, like a lot of my friends in finance are not there anymore. And, and, uh, it's not 2007 anymore. You know, the, the richest people, do you have a view on whether or not they're motivated a lot by money or about something else? And I mean, people like Elon Musk or Jeff Bezos, Bill Gates. Yeah. What is their, are they really motivated by money? No, I mean, no, it's a, it's a, a lot of like the very richest people. There's some sort of like competitive drive that I don't really have even access to, but it's, it's about being the best or being number one. And money is sometimes a scorecard for that, but not always. Um, but I also like, I mean, even where I worked in banking, like we were like people made a lot of money and it was a sort of well-paid area of the world, but it always felt like people's primary interest was, you know, I was, I was building corporate equity derivatives and people like really were intellectually engaged with that very like niche nerdy work. Um, people were interested in like tax law and like derivative structuring and, came to work every day because they were sort of motivated by intrinsic intellectual interest. And I think that that's true of a lot of fields where people make a lot of money. And it's not like, you know, it's not like necessarily purity of heart and they like build derivatives for fun and give away all the money. But I don't think that like you can get far in a lot of these industries if your only interest is, or if your if your primary motivation is money. But it's also, you know, th there, there are cultural elements that sort of conspire to make you more motivated by money because that's like the thing that the banks can give you. And so you do end up like measuring your worth a little bit by your bonus or whatever. We'll talk a little bit more about this in a little bit, but just since we're on the subject, what do you make of the people who, who break the law, cheat in various ways, who already have a lot of money, but do that to make a little bit, of, to make a little bit more money? Are their motivations money or are they also motivated by competitive spirit? I mean, I think there are a range of things. Um, I don't want to like ascribe one. Generalize, right. Yeah. I don't want to generalize too much because, you know, from my perspective, some number of the people who break the law are operating in ambiguous areas where they believe that they are doing something that is sort of accepted. Um, yeah. I'm not know. talking about those people. I'm talking about the people who knew what they were doing. <laughs> I'm talking about the people who knew. <laughs> you, you and I may disagree on like yeah. the sort of prevalence of different categories. Um I don't know. I mean, like, like clearly some number of people are like, you know, they need to win every deal. They need to win every situation and they will push as hard as they can. 
uh, in every situation. And sometimes that will get them in trouble. I think a lot of like the sort of classic financial criminals are like, are motivated by sort of pride and, you know, like the, the case of like, you have one down month and you don't want to tell your investors. So you fudge the returns and then you sort of snowball from there because you can, you never, you can never make it back. And so you keep fudging more and more. Like, I think that's a fairly common story. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, I'm sure there are some people who are like, you know, I need to make one more payment on my yacht, but I don't know that that's like a particularly <laughs> like common category. Can we talk about your writing a little bit? And and before we get to some of the substance, uh, you're, you're noted for your writing style uh, and it's, it's very readable. And here's how it was described in a New York Times profile. Not so common for a columnist for one media organization to get a profile in another media outlet. Quote, in financial news, a medium not known for cultivating eccentric or literary voices, there's no other writer quite like Mr. Levine, a former Goldman Sachs banker whose deadpan style mixes technical elucidation and wit, end quote. That's pretty good. Yeah, it's nice. Do you agree um, with that characterization? Um, I hope that I mix dead, whatever that was. Um, but uh, I do think that like there's more... Like one motivation that I had for going into financial writing is that, you know, I worked in an investment bank and uh, I was surrounded by like clever, funny, witty people who like, you know, sent great, funny, thoughtful emails, you know, and it did feel like there is an appetite for adventurous writing about finance and felt like there, that that appetite was not sort of fully being met. So I, my original conception of my audience was like the people I worked with at my bank. And like, I was like, these people are smart and they like a good joke, you know? And so it was, uh, it didn't feel weird to me at all that like you would try to write in a stylish way for a financial audience. Right. And, but you, but you do a lot of explaining and I wonder, you know, not all, not all of your readers are sophisticated. How do you balance between explanation and also sophistication. So, so yeah, that's evolved over time. When I started, you know, I left for, from, from Goldman for deal breaker, which is a, an independent financial blog that's mostly read by a financial audience. And I thought of my audience initially as being like the first year analysts on my desk, you know, people who sort of know the basics of finance and like, like you don't have to like spell out what DCF stands for or whatever, but people who don't necessarily know the technical details of everything and where you can explain more complicated details in a way that will, will sort of open their eyes and make them excited. But over time it's shifted, right? And now I write for a more general audience. And one thing that I think about is like, like what I'm going for is to explain something at a sort of high enough level of like economic intuition and generality that a person who does it for a living every day will not say, oh, this is oversimplified or this is wrong, but will say like, oh, I had never thought about it that way, but that does capture the essence of it, right? Like that's, that's you know, and you don't always achieve that, but like, like the idea of explaining not like the mechanical details of how a trade works, but like what the trade is about at some fundamental level. Like, you know, when I was at a bank, I worked on this like weird derivatives desk where we built these weird trades that were complicated and you'd come in and you'd learn how the trades worked by like reading documents and like seeing the pitch book and whatever. And you'd sort of have a handle on like what the trade was. And then like two years into your job, you'd be like, Oh, 
oh, I understand what's happening here. <laughs> like I understand the like the sort of real like why this is a product and like why people like it and like why we like it. And those things are not like part of the surface explanation or even the detailed explanation to the point where like, you know, we talked to lawyers who did these trades every, who documented these trades every day and who understood the mechanics really well, but didn't always understand the sort of like deep economic intuition behind them. So that's not exactly what I'm doing, but that's kind of like the thing I'm, the feeling that I'm going for is like to explain to people in the financial world, like what they're doing at a level that is like, uh, that is like more general than they think about it a day to, in a day-to-day basis. Yeah, I know you were sort of half kidding, but is, is there any bad aspect to the dynamic in which even the people involved in the products, the financial products, don't fully understand every aspect of them? Uh, maybe, but like, I don't, I don't really mean it in a bad way. I mean that like, you don't really build an intuition for like how these products fit into the sort of overall strategy of your corporate clients or the overall like balance sheet of the bank or like sort of like the overall, like how derivatives work without, um, doing it for a long time and, and kind of seeing it from a lot of angles, you know, I think like at some trivial level, like, yeah, like, you know, it'd be nice if, uh. I could tell you some stories about derivatives and I won't because of, <laughs> because of who you are, but, um, but I, I didn't, well, I was, way. you know, I, you know, yeah, I, have, yeah, I don't yeah. have, you don't have any, you know, I don't have, the same. I don't have podcasts subpoena power and, and there's no podcast jail. But yeah, I mean like it is, you know, there's some, some level at which, uh, very bright people with interesting agendas dream up complicated products and then they're sold by people who didn't dream them up, you know, and sometimes like that's, <laughs> right. It's either those people or the customers in trouble. Someone once called you, quote, the least offensive person in finance, end quote. What do you make of that answer? I don't think that's true. Are you offended at being called the least offensive person in no, finance? No, it's nice. It's nice. But um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> who are you more offensive then? I think that there's like a sort of like external view that like it's like evil bros and like there's like sort of like a monolithic culture of like fleece vests and cocaine. And it's not <laughs> fleece. You know? What is it? Fleece vests, fleece and, vests cocaine. and cocaine. That's so like, you know, a picture. like again, like, you know, I worked with a lot of people at Goldman and like some of them were like that. And you, and we're like, Oh yeah, this is like the bro that, that people like have in mind when they think about finance. But a lot of them were not. And like the people I worked with were, were not. And we're, we're like, uh, you know, we're like fun and quirky and interesting people. And uh, I'm sure I was more, I was definitely more offensive than some of them. I could think of some people who are like really nice people. And I'm like, okay, you know, I'm average. I don't know. What happens on days that you're really not sure what to write about? Because you do this every day. How does that work? Is it just a muscle? It's terror, but it's also like, it's helpful to do it every day because when you do a bad one, you're like, well, try again tomorrow, you know? Like, <laughs> Do you have any cheating strategies for when you're not feeling it or you're a little under the weather or nothing interesting sort of popping into your head? I really don't. I really don't. I obviously wish I did, but I really don't. I mean, like. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm, a, I'm asking because I write once a week for, uh, you know, people who subscribe to, uh, you know, our, our insider podcast. And I find sometimes once a week difficult. Yeah. Well, let me say two things to that. One is that before we started, you were, you were joking about how everything is, you were like asking me if everything was securities fraud. And like, we're to the extent to I have any cheats, it's like, I have a couple, you know, I have like a dozen sort of shticks that, that are like lenses on the world almost. And so one is that everything is securities fraud. And so like, 
uh, we can talk about the substance of that, but I'm sort of bored of saying it, but like, there's like a news story almost every day that can be tied to the notion that everything securities fraud, that everything bad that happens at a public company can be redescribed as securities fraud. And so I have like a dozen of those where they're like shticks where on any particular day, I might not have anything interesting to say about them, but there's a story where I can go through the greatest hits again. But the other thing I want to say is that I've on occasion in the past had weekly or biweekly columns, and I found that much, much, much harder than what I do now. Why is that? Some of it, I think different writers have just different metabolisms, metabolisms, and I have like a daily writing metabolism. But I also like, it's really, really, really helpful to be able to say, if today's sucks, I try again tomorrow. Whereas like at a, at a less frequent, at a, at a lower frequency, there's more weight put on everything. So like when I write, I, get I write a daily column and it has like three or four or five unrelated or sometimes related, but generally unrelated items in it. And so I'm writing, you know, whatever that is, 20 things a week. And the need for any one of them to be really good is very low. And so I find one that's just like psychologically helpful where I can be like, well, this particular section of this day sucks. Then there's like 20 others, you know, but then also like, it just frees you up to like, take a little bit more risk and be a little bit more experimental and write about weirder things so that you can like stretch into some weirder topic because you're like, well, and I'll also write about everything being securities fraud in the next topic. So it's like a little, there's like a, there's a sort of safety net to do weirder things. And that's often, often the ones that I sort of write as like weird throwaways are the ones that are, that are better. So to the extent I have a trick, it's, it's just, <laughs> just writing too much and panicking a lot. Do you want to know what my writing metabolism is? Sure. Annual. It's yeah, no, a lot of people have annual, <laughs> right? Like if mine were annual, I'd be a law professor right now, right? I mean, like that's the sort of- A lot of footnotes. The, you like footnotes. Yeah, no, right. I would be a good law professor if I could write one thing a year, but I can't. <laughs> so. All right, so let's, let's talk about this thing that you've alluded to a few times, your thesis that everything is securities fraud. And by that, it's obviously not just a shtick, it's a critique and a relevant one, the, the gist of which is, and you'll explain it much, much better than I, obviously, then we'll go through some examples, uh, is, is that- Things that happen to companies, publicly traded companies, can be transformed into securities fraud by plaintiffs, lawyers, and plaintiffs in class action lawsuits and otherwise, because they will allege uh, that the representations made by the company turned out not to be true. And even general representations like, you know, we have ethics and we have a compliance program and we put the customer first. At some point when the company doesn't do a great thing and does a bad thing, and it could be you know, not just something related to the bottom line, which is what you think about normally, but a plane crash or a Me Too incident or some other such thing, shareholders will sue and say it's securities fraud. Why is that bad? The thing that probably bothers me most about it is like at a very like macro level, like what it says about societal priorities, which is that, and by the way, like the way you describe it, I think is, is, is essentially accurate, but I, I would just add that it's not just plaintiff's lawyers, it's mainly plaintiff's lawyers and, and plaintiff's lawyers are, are where this is sort of sharpest and strangest, but it's also the SEC does some amount of transforming environmental harms or, you know, like there's conflict diamonds rules, right? Like, which are, which are about disclosure. But then if you like get conflict diamonds, probably your disclosure is wrong. And so you end up getting in trouble for securities fraud. Right. But, but, but some of the silly examples you give of things that happen at companies and you're, you know, you're very sarcastic and smart and clever about it. The SEC doesn't do that stuff. No, I agree. The SEC is, is not, is, is, is sort of closer to home, but, but the SEC and also like politicians do look to expand like the scope of 
securities law to cover things that are not first order securities things. So they look to solve climate change or conflict diamonds or whatever through securities law. And, and, and like the thing that I find weirdest about the whole complex, both plaintiffs, lawyers, and like politicians is um, like sort of what it says about like societal priorities where, you know, like the Me Too cases are are a great example. You know, there's a, there's a jewelry company that like had a big settlement with its, that, that was sued for allowing a pattern of sexual harassment and discrimination against its, its female employees. And that case is sort of dragging on and ongoing and they're fighting it hard, but they also pay it, you know, a lot of money to shareholders over that case because it's easier for the shareholders to bring that case. And the, the shareholder case is just, you didn't tell us about all the sexual harassment you were doing. And so it ends up being that the shareholders get compensated for the sexual harassment, whereas the victims of it don't. And like, those are like pretty common cases where what you have is like a prioritizing of the alleged harm to shareholders. And it's sort of obvious, right? Like you can, you can just point to like something that wasn't disclosed. You can point to the stock going down and you can say, well, the shareholders were harmed and like the, the rules are kind of mechanical and you have therefore this like rich ecosystem of plaintiffs, of securities plaintiffs, lawyers who know that they can bring these cases and get paid. And so they do and they get, and they settle for, pennies on the dollar of the, of very large claims. And so the securities lawyers get money. The shareholders sort of shuffle money around between them because the shareholders are both, you know, receiving and paying the damages. Right. It's kind of and weird, right? It's really weird. But then like, that's the way we address, you know, sexual harassment harms. That's the way we address environmental harms by public companies is by these securities lawsuits. And it's just weird to think, you know, if you were like designing a society from scratch, would you like, would you want climate change to be regulated by the interests of Exxon shareholders. Would you say, you know, the, like when, when earth warms and the sea levels rise, the victims there are Exxon shareholders. It's like just kind of a weird approach. And surely it doesn't get the incentives exactly right when you think about it that way. It's interesting when I mentioned plaintiff's lawyers and when I was in private practice, I did some uh, civil defense work with respect to class action securities lawsuits, like a lot of associates at a lot of law firms do if you're in the litigation department. Do you think some amount of blame should be laid at the feet of a system, a legal system in which it's not hard enough to certify a class, it's not hard enough to transform these events into securities fraud claims? And you mentioned politicians. Um, you know, politicians are not monolithic. There are a lot of politicians who've been trying to stop these lawsuits uh, for a long time, many of them Republicans. But what do you think the solution is here if it's in need of one? So there's a there's a case in the Supreme Court. Uh, the Goldman you know, Sachs case. The Goldman Sachs case. Um, uh, disclosure. I, I worked there. I have no involvement in the case. But there's a case in the Supreme Court about, about this, right? About like Goldman said, we have code of ethics and we put the client first. They, very sort of generic stuff. And they then, you know, did some stuff in 2007 that arguably did not put the client first. Uh, which we don't need to discuss in any great detail because probably everyone knows. And uh, and they got sued by shareholders over that because the stock did go down after the financial crisis. Somehow that is still being litigated and, uh, and the Supreme Court um, is going to consider whether those very generic statements can constitute securities fraud. And uh, presumably they're taking the case suggests that they have some interest in constraining this. And I don't know exactly what the constraint will look like. Um, I do think that like, one point of my critique is like, I don't think it's bad to try to prevent companies from allowing sexual harassment or 
you know, polluting or whatever, right? I think that like the the thing that is happening here is that it is easier and more lucrative to channel some of these complaints into securities fraud cases. And a sort of sensible solution would be to one, channel them out of those cases and two, channel them into something else. And so like when I talk about politicians, one thing in particular that I'm thinking of is like the New York state attorney general suing it and, 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 and other like um, states either doing or suggesting this suing Exxon Mobil for, for not properly disclosing the impact of climate change on its business, which is, you know, what I alluded to saying, like the victims of climate change, the victims of global warming are, are Exxon shareholders, which seems strange, but like part of why she's doing that is because it is, difficult for politicians otherwise to address climate change because like there's a lot of effort to prevent that right there's a, there's, there are sort of you know two political sides there and it's difficult for laws to be passed or for you know for substantive lawsuits over over like climate change emissions to go forward and so this non-substantive this like sort of like corollary approach by going through securities fraud is a way to accomplish things that people think should be accomplished and that are hard to accomplish directly. And I think in a lot of cases, like it would probably be better for there to be a way to address these things directly, but it is made difficult by like our politics and our democratic process and like sort of a lot of other facts of the political situation. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm in the luxurious place of just saying this is weird, right? Like, like, I'm not sure that like we'd be better off if like, you know, if I could wave a magic wand and like get rid of all of these. Well, things. I was going to ask that. Like what's the, what's, what would be the Matt Levine bill? Like, I think that this is like possibly a second best world where like if, if the, the Matt Levine were dictator, right? Like I would maybe address some of the problems substantively, but like in the real world, it might be too controversial to address those problems through like the American like democratic process and addressing them indirectly through the SEC might be better than like the existing alternatives. I'm not sure what you mean by that. In, in what way would you ask for the SEC to figure out a way to make it a higher threshold to convert sort of non-financial events into securities fraud? I just think like in practice, if you like bring like an EPA administrator nominee before Congress and that person says, we're going to ban greenhouse, you know, like we're going to, go net zero or something, you like make some aggressive statement about climate change. Like, I think that will be hard to sort of, there'll be a lot of lawsuits, there'll be a lot of like administrative procedure act objections. There'll be a lot of like opposition to confirmation. Like the political process is sort of built around stasis on climate change regulation. Whereas like an SEC chair nominee can be like, yeah, we're going to like require better disclosure of climate change and possibly accomplish some amount of substantive, substantive regulation through disclosure regulation that might be hard for the direct regulator to do. Similarly, like I think it's real weird that like the main deterrent to companies sexual, like the companies allowing sexual harassment really might be securities fraud cases. I think that's, real weird and says weird things about our social priorities. But I also think that like possibly better to have that weird deterrent than no deterrent. Right. Um, yeah. Look, what's also interesting is I'm not sure that every actor in the process, and I don't want to denigrate anybody, but not every actor in the process is thinking about it in terms of necessarily social value, social good. I think none of them social are. Justice. That's why it's my job. <laughs> right, right, right. You know, 
there are people who are thinking about it as a, as a a theory by which you can you can enrich yourself. I mean, as you point out, look, the, the entire concept of class action is interesting, much studied by lawyers and and legal academics, but it is not worthwhile for a lawyer to take on a case of any of these things becoming securities fraud in your phrase, unless you can represent a class, because any particular shareholder is out just a tiny bit of money, but you aggregate those among many, 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 many people. Well, now you got a case and now you got the potential for some legal income, right? Yeah. Also like, it's really easy to aggregate them because like what happened to a shareholder is identical to what happened to every shareholder. Whereas like when you have these like sexual harassment or sex discrimination class action cases, like there will often be like real substantive questions about class certification because each, you know, if a company has a lot of, if a company tolerates a lot of sexual harassment, like well, what happens to each, to each victim is different. Right. And so you can have a real problem uh, with, with sort of finding a representative class. Whereas with shareholders, like it's so easy. There's nothing there. The stock just went down. So everyone who had the stock lost money. My interview with Matt Levine continues after this. You know what's weirder than what we've been discussing? Weirder than the idea that everything is securities fraud? Cryptocurrency. Can we, can we talk about... Is it? I don't know. <laughs> well, to me it is. To me yeah, it is. It's um, you know, so cryptocurrency has many attributes that people like. Among them, as I see it, you know, that it's digital. It's the future. People will say it's cutting edge. It's, it's decentralized. It's not part of any particular... It's not associated with any government. Those are among the benefits that people tout with respect to crypto. And here's a quote from you, which also showcases your, your writing style that is unique. Just imagine traveling 10 years back in time and trying to explain this to someone. Just imagine what an idiot you'd feel like. And this is in a column about Dogecoin. Quote, there's going to be this online currency that people think is a form of digital gold. And then there's going to be a different online currency that is a parody of the first one based on a meme about a talking Shiba Inu and that one will have a market capitalization bigger than 80% of the companies in the S&P 500 and its value will fluctuate based on things like who is hosting Saturday Night Live <laughs> and whether people tweet a hashtag about it on the pot joke holiday and it goes on in that vein. So isn't it fair for me to say this is weird? Yeah, Dogecoin is real weird. <laughs> <laughs> Can you explain what Dogecoin is for folks? Yeah, so Bitcoin is a cryptocurrency and when Bitcoin started... Like sometime after Bitcoin became popular and sort of valuable, people kind of realized that it came from nowhere. And so they could do their own thing. They could like recreate it. So like you could do a fork of the Bitcoin code where you just like copied the open source code for, code for Bitcoin and changed the name. And so people did that. And there are things called like Litecoin and a bunch of other like sort of takeoffs. And this became such a meme and a joke that someone did it and called it Dogecoin and put like the picture of Doge, the like weird talking Shiba Inu on it. And they're like, ha ha ha, buy my cryptocurrency, which is called Dogecoin. And that was a joke. And now it's worth like $60 billion. <laughs> right, right. Is there anything inherently bad about a joke becoming something that's worth tens of billions of dollars? Um, it makes me somehow tired, but no, I don't, I mean, <laughs> right, right. I guess not. It gives you something to write about at least. It does. So here's my sort of thinking on this. Like, so Bitcoin is like, a, like when you talk to Bitcoin evangelists like there's a lot of interesting stuff going on in bitcoin right like bitcoin like can, can we just pause right there why are there evangelists 
because it's a trillion dollar asset class that people bought when it was smaller. I mean, I don't know. Are that you worked <laughs> yeah. at you worked at it's in their interest to be evangelists, right? But is there something? Is there something beyond the beyond the money? Is cryptocurrency a borderline ideology, as opposed to just currency? Yeah, I mean, like it's a, it's a sort of like it's fitting with a sort of like libertarian ethos of like. If you're if you're a Bitcoin, like there are a lot of reasons to like Bitcoin, and they they don't all have to do with a sort of like anti-regulatory like libertarianism. But like if you're a sort of strong evangelist, it's often because you think that Bitcoin uh, is like helpful for freedom that it that it like allows you to escape censorship or repression or something like that. There's also I find it less understandable. But there are also like hard money cranks who get into Bitcoin. Because they think that like the Fed is inflating away the value of the dollar and Bitcoin will never do that to you. So that's a that's a form of like religious fervor for Bitcoin. But I think the main one is is like a libertarian one. And I think it's a, like, a, like I try not to be too dismissive of that because I think that it is easier to be unimpressed by that in the United States where you're like Bitcoin is for buying drugs. But I think in other countries, like it's it's Bitcoin is a way to hide your money from a repressive government or a, a, a sort of like catastrophically mismanaged government. And so I think there's something something to be said for the sort of like libertarian evangelist case for Bitcoin. But like, that's why they're evangelists because like some number of people think that the government shouldn't know how much money they have or how they spend it. And that Bitcoin sort of uniquely, uniquely like solves that problem. Does the evangelism or the ideology have some effect on the volatility of the value? Maybe. I mean, I don't know. Like, I think that like, I think a portion of the volatility is, well, so yes. So, so, so one thing is like, you can have a simple model of like Bitcoin goes up when it like mainstream investors and buyers and holders adapted. And so like, if Bitcoin is an alternative store of value that a lot of investors want, then it's worth, you know, trillions and trillions of dollars. And so its price will go up because a lot of like, you know, 10% of your retirement fund will end up in Bitcoin, right? And Bitcoin goes down. It's not the only reasons for it to go up or down, but these are these are reasons. Bitcoin goes down when some regulator is like, this is for crooks and drug dealers and we're going to ban it, right? So like one reason that Bitcoin has been crashing recently is that Chinese authorities have been making noises about cracking down on crypto miners and on crypto exchanges, in part for concerns about its environmental effect, but in part for the reason that lots of governments don't like it, which is that it seems often to be a tool of crooks and drug dealers and 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 money launderers. Right. But as you point out, it's not just China's regulatory crackdown, potentially. There's the existence of this other nation state. Elon Musk. Elon Musk. <laughs> you got ahead of my joke. Sorry to steal your joke there. <laughs> <laughs> Who, as you write, quote, Musk has the ability to make Bitcoin go up or down whenever he wants with his tweets with no limits on that power. I mean, that's not good, is it? <sighs> Or is it okay? I'm a little bit joking. Is that security like fraud? A tiny bit. Um, is that security fraud? I mean, I, I've probably, like, people keep asking me that, and I probably speculate on it a little. I mean, I think the Well, your answer, answer is clear. It's always yes. Well, I, sure. I mean, I think the main answer is that Bitcoin is not a security. So to the extent he is manipulating the price of Bitcoin, he is not manipulating the price of a security, although, like, the CFTC may have some interest in the, in the price of Bitcoin. Um, there's a sort of secondary question of, is he doing something that is somehow relevant to the price of Tesla stock in a way that could be securities yes. fraud. And I will, I will uh, 
stay away from that one. But, you know, I mean, like if Tesla stock went down, is someone going to sue him over this? Sure, of course. The fact is, like his tweeting about Bitcoin doesn't seem to be having that much effect on Tesla stock, which is the only thing that is preventing me from talking more about that question. Um, so I'm being a little tongue in cheek and saying that he can make it go up or down anytime he wants. Like it, it, it has been true in recent weeks that he's had a lot of tweets and the stock and the, the price of Bitcoin has moved materially after each one of those tweets in the direction suggested by the tweets. So he'll be like, Bitcoin is bad for the environment and it goes down. Yeah. Let's talk about the parody of Bitcoin, which we talked about a couple of minutes ago, Dogecoin. Yes. He can also move that one. Those are the two. <laughs> those are the two. And he goes on SNL and makes some jokes. Value goes down 40%. Also not good. Or maybe it's fine. Well, it's fine in the sense of like, why do you care? <laughs> like, like Dogecoin is. Well, I'm a not joke. getting into it. Right. I'm not. I'm not getting into Dogecoin. Like, if you're buying Dogecoin, like I think if you're buying Dogecoin, it's to speculate on what Elon Musk will say on Saturday Night Live. So the fact that it went down after Saturday Night Live is like, it's neither good nor bad. It's like it's like people are getting what they wanted, which is a bet on that. But we talked about these, you know, evangelists. Sure. And the association. There are not a lot of Dogecoin evangelists. There are some, but. <laughs> well, won't there be more depending on its value? I mean, at, at what point? Maybe. At what point is there a conflict between something being about liberty and being about comedy? Yeah. I mean, to be clear, I think that like Bitcoin like has a lot of seriousness to it. And like people, like a lot of people believe deeply in Bitcoin and Dogecoin mostly doesn't, right? Like Dogecoin is mostly a joke. Um, but th- th- there are some, there are some sort of serious events. You know, like, like, every, like these are sort of like, these are not like um, organized phenomena, right? Like these are these are very distributed, like just a bunch of people coordinating around a thing. And so some of the people, like different people involved in these like large distributed communities have different motivations. And, you know, you see in Bitcoin, there are people who are like evangelical about, about like the libertarian aspects of it and about overthrowing the sort of regular fiat financial system. And there are other people who are like Fidelity or just giant asset managers who are like, this is the thing that goes up. We're going to buy it for our clients because we want to go It's purely pragmatic. It's very yeah. pragmatic. And, and, and with Dogecoin, you know, you have like a small minority of people who are like, no, no, even though this was a joke, by accident, it's become the future of money. And there are like a couple of those people. But then most of the people are like, oh, this is fun and it might go up and it's like a good joke and it's got a Shiba Inu, you know? But like, they're all diverse communities. Like they're all like, people have different motivations and there's no like, it's like anything in markets. You you can. Like, there's always an like, opportunity. There's always the opportunistic class, no matter what. When something goes up or something goes down, right? Yeah, that's true. But it's just like in anything in markets, like you can like tell some narrative of like why a thing is going up or down, or like what holders of the thing believe. But like that will only be like approximately true on average, right? And like there will be a lot of people who believe different things and are doing it for different reasons and have different motivations. And you know the market price is like the aggregate of all of those things rather than like one particular narrative. Right. One final bit about uh, Elon Musk and, and Bitcoin. He announced not long ago, just some weeks ago, that customers could buy Teslas with Bitcoin. Some people thought that was a little bit strange. And within a very short period of time, he suspended that plan to accept payments with Bitcoin, citing concerns that other people have cited as well about the massive carbon footprint associated with the mining of Bitcoin. What do you make of A, the flip-flop, and B, the legitimacy of the environmental critique of cryptocurrency. If you follow Elon Musk, like he says a lot of stuff on Twitter that is official policy of Tesla for a short period until someone changes his mind about it. You know, everything is securities fraud. He did get in trouble with the SEC for securities fraud when he tweeted that he was going to take Tesla private at $420 a share. And that was just like an impulse and he didn't actually do it. Um, so like him having a policy of we're going to accept Bitcoin for Tesla's like that sounded like, I don't know why he changed his mind because 
the environmental stuff has been pretty salient for years and years and years. And so it's not like it could have been a surprise to him that Bitcoin uses electricity. But, you know, someone could have sat with him and been like, hey, we should accept Bitcoins for Teslas. And he was like, cool. And then someone else could have been like, this is really bad for the environment. And your whole shtick or half of your shtick is being an environmentalist and convinced him that that was probably not a good idea. Uh, I don't, I mean, I wouldn't, I'm not sure I would look for more consistency or more sort of deep explanation than that. What about more importantly, the, the substantive environmental critique? Yeah. I mean, Bitcoin uses a lot of electricity. It's a strange system to have money that is, you know, based on a lot of people burning a lot of coal to, uh, confirm redundant copies of a transaction ledger. I mean, so I think there's like an answer to that. There are some answers to that critique. One is that a lot of the energy being used to, to mine Bitcoin is renewable or is stranded or something. So that, but, but a lot of it is not, but a lot of it is not. Yeah. A lot of it is not like, I think like on balance, the environmental critique is, is serious and correct. But I do think that there is like the sort of clever answer to that is that Bitcoin has like, I mean, if you, the, the, the sort of half joking phrase is that Bitcoin is a battery. The idea is that you can mine Bitcoin anywhere, anytime. And so you will be incentivized to do it in places where electricity is abundant and cheap and perhaps even clean, although not necessarily. Um, and so like a lot of like stranded energy assets where like hydroelectric power in Northern Sweden, where there are not a lot of homes being air conditioned, you know, can be used to mine Bitcoins. And so it perhaps incentivizes the development of cleaner and cheaper power. But I think on balance, like, you know, a lot of Bitcoin is mined in China using like dirty coal plants. And so it's a real concern. Yeah, I think, I think the Wall Street Journal reported recently that, that some coal plants are coming back online, having been taken offline solely for this purpose. Yeah. And I think that like, you know, I think there is this like sort of like counterintuitive, actually it encourages the development of cheap electricity case. But I think the main case that Bitcoin people would make is that Bitcoin is good, you know, for the world. It's like promotes human flourishing and liberty and whatever. And therefore we can spend a certain amount of power on it. And, you know, I think like a lot of people who are not committed Bitcoiners say, well, listen, wouldn't it be better to use less power? And so you see like in the crypto world, a movement towards trying to find a way to provide security for crypto networks that doesn't involve so much electricity usage. And, you know, Ethereum, which is kind of the number two cryptocurrency, has for years been planning to move to a proof of stake blockchain where it's it's it uses a lot less power to confirm transactions. And like, as I think yesterday, there was another article about how that's happening imminently. So I think that like in the broad like world of cryptocurrency, there are efforts made to sort of reduce power consumption. But like the sort of core Bitcoin blockchain is is sort of committed to proof of work, like energy intensive usage. Final question. Do you think anything that we said here today constitutes securities fraud? I don't think either of us works at a public company, right? So I think it'd be hard. Um, we don't. I think it'd be hard. All I right, good. Like, yeah. That's what keeps me, um, that's what keeps me happy. I do my best to stay out of prison, you know? <laughs> yeah, you've been, you've done pretty well so far. Um, Matt Levine, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thank you for having me. It's fun. My conversation with Matt Levine continues for members of the Cafe Insider community. To try out the membership free for two weeks, head to cafe.com slash insider. Again, that's cafe.com slash insider. I want to end the show this week on an optimistic note because things are reopening, things are getting better. 
And there's something in particular that I think has been bringing lots of people joy recently, something that's been missing a lot over the last 15 months. I know a lot of you have started to enjoy real life things again, getting together with family, meeting friends you haven't seen, kids are seeing their grandparents, and that's great. But there's also a public aspect to all of this, which is the reopening of public venues where lots of people can get together, not just small gatherings in your backyard or in your dining room. The good news is as of today, in my home state of New York, more than 52% of residents have had at least one dose of the vaccine. That's over 10.4 million people. In the country at large, it's about the same. Roughly half of the entire U.S. population has also received at least one dose. Beginning on May 19th, New York State lifted almost all restrictions, no longer requiring vaccinated people to mask up outside and socially distance. And we've lifted the outdoor food and beverage curfew and public schools will fully reopen in the fall. That's quite a change from recent times. And it feels kind of surreal taking off a mask when you've been wearing it every day, even outside, even when you're several feet away from people. It felt funny at first, but I'll tell you, I've gotten used to it. One thing that's coming back is sports. Well, not just sports, but fans in large numbers being able to attend their favorite sports events. The Knicks-Hawks NBA playoff game on Sunday brought 15,000 fans to Madison Square Garden, 90% of whom were vaccinated. And I think it's fair to say the sound of the cheering crowd and the energy coming out of the arena was overwhelming to a lot of folks. There was also quite a crowd at the PGA Championship over the past weekend. And baseball fans, they're getting in on the action too. You know, you may not realize it, but Yankee Stadium and City Field in New York are also mass vaccination sites. And they're offering a voucher for a free ticket to anyone who gets vaccinated there on game days as a way to encourage people to get the vaccine. Last Friday at Yankee Stadium, it was the first home game with a section specifically for vaccinated folks. And it was, it was a pretty good game and special to me because my 18-year-old son at the last minute got a ticket to go with friends to watch the game. It was not a full house. They're still working on that. But there were over 10,000 fans in attendance and the Yankees beat the Chicago White Sox 2-1 to one in a pretty memorable finish. My son got to see one of the most rare events in all of baseball and perhaps even in, in all of sports. Runners lead, pitch. Hit on the ground to third, step on third, go to second, there's two, I back to first, it's a triple play, a triple play. And to end the game, Yankee second baseman, Glaber Torres, ended the ninth inning and the game with a walk-off single. Hit sharply, a base hit to left field, Judge rounds third, they're waving him home, here's the throw, here's the play, Yankees win two to one. That was a pretty happy kid who came home that evening. We're still not there. There's much to look forward to on the horizon, like the full reopening of Broadway theaters in September. And all this is contingent on people doing their part, continuing to get vaccinated so we can get that number up to 70% and higher. There's a lot of things that we've missed over the last year, year and a half. The roar of the crowd, do you miss it? At concerts and at ball games? I know I do. Speaking about the return to gathering in large groups among strangers, people you don't know, for a common event like sports, got writer Charlie Warzel, who has the newsletter Galaxy Brain, reflect in this way, quote, I spent the pandemic missing and mourning gathering in public on a personal and physical level. It wasn't just the socialization, I told myself. I missed feeding off the energy of different rooms and spaces. I missed being around other people in an ambient fashion, eavesdropping on their conversations 
ignoring them, talking over them, whatever. I simply needed the energy of others. But what the return of sports has made me realize is how much I rely on crowds that I'm not a part of in order to feel less alone. This might sound sad, but I don't see it that way. Quite the opposite, really. End quote. I know how he feels. And one of the things I'm looking forward to the most, on a personal level, is having live Stay Tuned shows. We're hoping to have one in the fall. Stay tuned for that. Well, that's it for this episode of Stay Tuned. Thanks again to my guest, Matt Levine. If you like what we do, rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. Send me your questions about news, politics, and justice. Tweet them to me at Preet Bharara with the hashtag AskPreet, or you can call and leave me a message at 669-247-7338. That's 669-24-PREET. Or you can send an email to staytunedatcafe.com. Stay Tuned is presented by Cafe Studios and the Vox Media Podcast Network. Your host is Preet Bharara. The executive producer is Tamara Sepper. The senior producer is Adam Waller. The technical director is David Tattashore. The CAFE team is Matthew Billy, David Kurlander, Sam Ozerstaden, Noah Azulai, Nat Wiener, Jake Kaplan, Jennifer Korn, Chris Boylan, and Sean Walsh. Our music is by Andrew Dost. I'm Preet Bharara. Stay tuned.